2: Again, look, the Russians are basically geopolitical guerrillas. They're a relatively weak country trying to basically force the outside world to treat them as if they're a great power. And, And all of politics is about perception.
1: You're listening to War College, a weekly podcast that brings you the stories from behind the front lines. Here are your
2: hosts...
0: Hello, welcome to War College. I'm Matthew Galt. And I'm Derek Gannon. We need to talk about Putin. Of all the leaders of state, nobody is as maligned, studied, and overanalyzed as Russian President Vladimir Putin. He's a KGB thug, he's playing three dimensional chess while everyone else is playing checkers, and he's turned a state that was into decline into a global superpower through information warfare. No one is as cunning as Putin. Or at least that's the story we tell ourselves here in the West, or one of the stories we tell ourselves here in the West. Here to help us dispel some of those myths and set the record straightish is friend of the show, Mark Gagliotti. Gagliotti is an expert on the Russian military, politics, and underworld, the author of many fine books, and an honor- honorary professor at University of College London, and a senior associate fellow at the Royal United Services Institute. He's got three, count him three books coming out this month, and we're going to talk about two of them. One is we need to talk about Putin, how the West gets him wrong, and another is Russian political war moving beyond the hybrid. Mark, thank you so much for joining us. You've been very busy. Yes, indeed, but it's always a pleasure to talk to you guys. Okay, so why do we need to talk about Putin, and what are the most common myths that you hear about him in the West?
2: Okay, well, this is obviously going to occupy for the next three hours, I think. Um, why do we need to talk about Putin? Well, because, to be perfectly honest, I think on a policy level and on a kind of public discourse level, we so often get him wrong. And I think this is one of the things. This, this book is essentially, I mean, you had a chance to look at it, it's a mercifully short but essentially intemperate rant on my part. Um, because what frustrates me is there's still so much really good um, scholarly think tank and professional understanding and analysis of Russia and indeed Putin. But nonetheless policy-making seems still to rely on these really shallow clichés and, and myths. And just to kind of pick up on, on, on a couple um, that, that are kind of, for me, particularly important. One is, it's the idea that Putin has a grand plan um, and is behind everything. And secondly, it's this idea that Putin, in effect, is, is the one person who is kind of running the whole, the whole campaign um because the problem is that this totally misunderstands how Putin operates and how the Russian state operates and it means that we're constantly looking for a master plan we're constantly looking for you know this like this this underlying logic and then getting caught out because in the main there isn't an underlying logic
0: it's conspiratorial thinking right you're you're kind of looking for this top down thing and then trying to fit your theory into it right
2: yeah, absolutely. And, and the point is, look, you know, we know that, and, and not just in this way, but particularly in terms of his geopolitical strategy against the West. I mean, what Putin does is not micromanage. Instead, he kind of lets it be broadly known what his main objectives are, which are essentially to, to neutralise us, to divide us, to distract us, to demoralise us, to the point where we actually are kind of more willing to make a deal with Putin, that it seems easier just to make a deal than to stand up to him. Or else, that in some ways we are just so busy resolving internal disputes and so forth that in a way we can't muster the political will to do anything, even if we wanted to. But beyond those kind of very broad parameters, Putin more or less says, "Well, let's see what people come up with." I mean, he's in some ways his brilliance is that what he's done is he has weaponized the ambitions and the um, imaginations of so many different Russians. So you have ambassadors and journalists, oligarchs, minigarchs, heads of residenturas, the sort of, you know, intelligence cells in embassies, all these other different actors thinking, well, do I have any opportunities? Do I have any leverage? Just do I have a bright idea that might be able to help push forward this geopolitical agenda? And, okay, some... Some major projects clearly are either initiated by the Kremlin or, at the very least, need the Kremlin to sign off. But most of the time, the Kremlin has no idea what's going on and doesn't care because four out of five, nine out of ten, 19 out of 20 of these individual little attempts at mischief will come to nothing. And from the Kremlin's point of view, no biggie. They've invested no time, no money in it. But for the the ones and the twos that do actually work then the Kremlin rewards handsomely the people who are behind it and in a way takes it over and, and runs with it and sees how it can d- use it to disrupt the West.
0: Now, can we just very briefly, like, specifically what kind of projects are we talking about? We're talking about, like, uh, you know, a protest group comes up and they fund both sides or appear to fund both sides, that kind of
2: thing? I think this is, this is one of the problems in talking about this because... It is so diffuse, and it is totally driven by opportunities. So in in one situation in one country, absolutely, maybe it's it's supporting groups on the left and the right who are busy competing, you know, populist, anti-establishment candidates or whatever. Somewhere else it may well be hacks to uncover embarrassing information or just generally to, to paralyze systems. In a third situation, I mean the most extreme cases, we've seen you know, potential, you know, attempted coup and so forth. Um but it is very much what is going on in this situation that can be worsened. The Russians do not have magic mind control powers. They on the whole can't create these problems, but they look at what's there and they think okay, how can we how can we make more trouble where it is so yeah i mean it, it's everything from from kind of political subversion all the way through to sometimes actually sort of supporting more violent acts uh, a term that came up as i
0: was reading your your stuff is the spookocracy and can you tell the audience like what that means and why it's important
2: well i mean putin is famously infamously um, a veteran of the KGB. And I think one of the things, is, if, if you look at his career, it's clear that he was actually pretty mediocre as a KGB uh, operative. And much of the time, I mean, he was based in East Germany. And he was not quite so much James Bond, a little bit more Miss Moneypenny, um, in that he was much more involved in just simply routing reports and such like than he was actually gathering intelligence. But still, his entire career, he has been fascinated by, in effect seduced by, the intelligence community. I mean, this is a guy who, when he was a school kid, he went to the KGB headquarters in, well, St. Petersburg, as it was called then, Leningrad. This infamous building, the Bolshoi Dom, the big house, um, which used to be the Stalinist secret police headquarters. So, you know, its basements were where people were were assassinated, killed and tortured. People went through there on the way to the gulags and so forth. And, you know, little... Teenage Putin went along saying, hello, how can I join? Um, So right from the beginning, he's been fascinated. And I think, therefore, what that means is we've seen this interesting process in which a disproportionate um, number of the people who have done very well under, under Putin in business and in politics actually have intelligence service backgrounds. Maybe they're ex-KGB. Maybe they're in the post-Soviet sort of equivalents, the Federal Security Service, the Foreign Intelligence Service or Military Intelligence, the GRU. But one way or the other, there's the, there, there is a disproportionate number there. And more to the point, precisely because Putin is a spook fanboy, what's happened is increasingly, I think, his view of the world is shaped by the spooks. I mean, one thing we do know is, I mean, you know, he's, he, he's a late riser, he spends the morning doing his workouts and swimming and so forth. When he does actually get down to work, which is usually early afternoon, the very first thing he reads, three leather-bound briefing books. The Federal Security Service telling him what's going on inside Russia. The Foreign Intelligence Service telling him what's going on outside Russia. And the Federal Protection Service, his, his Praetorian Guards, basically telling him what's going on within the elite. I suspect that's meant to be to, I don't know, stop coups from happening, but it's probably more like actually inside gossip. Um, But the point is that shapes the rest of his day, that shapes the rest of his view of the world. And when you talk to, to very disgruntled people within the Russian foreign ministry, for example, they say it's so difficult for them to get through, because in some ways, if Putin is already believing what is often paranoid nonsense that has been told to him by his own spooks. It's very hard for the, for the Foreign Office briefings to then go along and say, no, actually the West isn't trying to undermine us or whatever, because then he's, he's not going to be thinking, why are the spooks lying to me? He's going to be thinking, why are the Foreign Service people trying to basically stick stick up for the West? So I think this is what happened. It's not actually that the intelligence Services are in command, but in many ways, I think, with Putin's acquiescence... They have now become the people who, in a way, shape the world as far as Putin is concerned, shape his vision of the challenges facing Russia. Do you think that some of this acts as then kind of a weird
0: check on his power because because there are these what can I call them shadow influences on him and that shape the way he sees the world
2: well Ultimately, Putin is just one guy, so obviously he depends on the people through which he he rules Russia. Um, Does this act as uh, as a kind of a a check on him? Well, I would say yes, but actually in a bad way. Um, I mean, There's a much wider issue about the role of intelligence. But, I mean, ideally, intelligence should always be the people who bring you the best truth. In other words, this is our best take of what's going on, regardless of whether it fits the political... Whims of the moment. Now that's clearly not happening in in Russia. Quite the opposite. Basically, the intelligence services are almost competing to tell him uh, sort of comforting lies that basically support his own existing worldview. So actually, I think it's it's a check in the sense of it would be a check if he if all of a sudden he decided one morning, huh? Maybe it's actually not best for Russia that we be engaged in a sort of. New era of geopolitical confrontation with the West. Maybe we shouldn't be mired in a conflict in Ukraine. In all these kind of things. Maybe the CIA was not behind the Ukrainian revolution. You know, If he did have this, this, this sudden kind of um, you know, Scrooge-like conversion, the three ghosts of geopolitics, present, future and past, came and visited him, it would actually be really difficult for him to break out of this kind of controlling cocoon this kind of cradle in which the spooks have already placed him.
0: So that leads me to my next question. I guess, that, well, it's kind of a two-part. What does he want for Russia? What's his vision here? You say that there's no, there's no grand plan. So then is it just about him surviving and being in power? And to that end, how does someone like Putin stop being the president of Russia? Is it possible?
2: Yeah, I mean, those, those are obviously the big questions. Now, let's just start with what Putin wants. I mean, for himself, yeah, of course, he, he wants his, his political survival, his actual survival, and to continue his sort of very comfortable existence. Uh, you know, you can live very well when you've got all of Russia as your piggy bank. Um, at the same time, though, I mean, I think he's no longer motivated primarily by financial considerations. In some ways, I think he's outgrown that he has all the money he could possibly need. Um, and instead, he's really thinking about his place in history. It's an interesting and slightly depressing evolution. When, when Putin first came into power in 2000, he talked tough on nationalism, but he was actually strikingly pragmatic. He felt that um, Russia's future depended on having some kind of a positive relation with the West, not to become a Western democracy, but you know, just to be able to have some kind of modus of ending. The trouble is, his vision of how that would look was very different from the West's. I mean, he felt, well, look, we're backing you on the great global war on terror, therefore you shouldn't have a problem as we, you know, carpet-bomb Chechen cities fighting their own war of independence and that kind of thing. So, I mean, he became disillusioned, and, you know, over time, he became increasingly antagonistic towards the West. And by 2007, when he gave a particularly sort of momentous speech at the Munich Security Conference... Um, you know, it is clear that, that relations had soured. However, it's then when he spent um, some time formally speaking out of office. He did a little sort of switcheroo with his sort of tame prime minister because, because of term limits. So he sort of then spent one term as prime minister, but really in charge behind the scenes. But I think in that time, he seems to have essentially, put it another way, way radicalised himself. Um, like so many authoritarian leaders over time Putin in effect became a caricature of himself um, became more and more convinced that the West was trying to undermine Russia um, by, by basically not treating it as if it was a great global power when we're talking about a country with an economy well depending on how you count it, it could well be smaller than the economy of Texas and no disrespect meant to Texas but it does not make it a global superpower um, and at the same time, I mean, whatever Texans might think. Um, at the same time, um, when Russians started to get angry with Putin when he came back into power, um, there were the so-called Bolotnaya protests of, of 2011, 2012. Instead of seeing this as you know a certain proportion of the electorate that was fed up. That felt, well, no, actually, you know, you don't just simply get to swap amongst you, you and your friend who gets to be president. But he saw this in this sort of evidence that the West was behind protests and such like. And Hillary Clinton, in particular, became his sort of noir So, in a way, it's a very long answer to your question. But what's happened now is, I think, his vision of what he wants for Russia has morphed. And it's now much more linked to his own personal vision of what he wants for himself and his historic place. And, you know, in, in, in fashionable sense, one could say it's, it's about making Russia great again. Um, but his notion of what a great power means is a very 19th century one. It's not about, you know, modern soft power, interconnections and so forth. No, it's a great power has a sphere of influence which basically means Russia should control the other post-Soviet states, with the exception of the Baltic states, which I think he reckons are lost. But countries such as Ukraine and Georgia and and Belarus should realise that they are basically beholden to Moscow. Secondly, a great power has a voice on every single major global issue, regardless of whether there's a direct Russian role or not, because, again, that's just a mark of prestige. And thirdly, that... Putin doesn't want to destroy the international order or international norms or international law, but what he does want is to say, "But Russia gets to ignore them when it's convenient for it." These are all the things that he thinks, for a start, that America has, and he feels Russia should have too. So these these are very broad, and these are very emotional things. These are just about you know a guy who is part of a generation who, first of all, was raised Soviet, and you know. Late Soviet, which is much more about superpower status than anything to do with Marxism, Leninism. And secondly, the generation of people who were, you know, there, adults, and had to deal with this massive psychological blow, when, almost literally overnight. They went from being citizens of one of the great global superpowers to citizens of this almost failing ramshackle state that was sort of, you know, being led by a drunkard and, and such like. Um, you know, so, so I think that, that there is a great psychological sense of just simply Russia is Russia. And, and almost by definition, Russia should be treated as if it was important, not because of its economy, which is not that great or anything like that, but because it's Russia. And in that respect, I mean, we sh- in hindsight, we shouldn't be that surprised. In 1999, before he was president, he said Russia has been a great power for centuries and remains so. It has always had and still has legitimate zones of interest. We should not drop our guard in this respect, neither should we allow our opinion to be ignored. So even then, he was saying, basically, Russia has been a great power, and therefore Russia should be a great power. Now, to go on to your second question about how, how do you stop, I'll be honest, I think he's bored. I, I think he's actually fed up of the job and in some way losing his mojo. Um He used to have a real connection with the Russian people. That's beginning to decline. I mean, his approval ratings are still very high by Western standards, but that's not a good comparison. But, you know, more and more Russians are actually feeling that he's untrustworthy. More and more Russians are just thinking that, in a way, his his time has passed. And I think he is as well. But the problem is, when you're in this system, what do you do? You know, I can't see Putin being the sort of person who has his eye on a yacht, a Caribbean mansion, and a life playing kind of charity pro-am golf with other ex-presidents. You know, I think this is a guy who's going to stay in Russia. I think he's looking for a successor, someone he feels he can trust with his legacy and and his his own security. Um, And that he'll also kind of build himself some kind of constitutional system, you know, position that gives him security. But I think this is it. It's a question of whether he's ultimately ever going to feel he can let go. I think Putin would like to, but it's 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 a difficult thing to abandon being an autocrat It's usually a deadly thing right well i mean russia hasn't isn't quite that carnivorous i mean if we look at what happened to to gorbachev if we look at what happened to yeltsin um it's not so much that actually your 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 successors feel feel the need to wipe you out, but it's more that you might say you know whether whether you still have the quality of life, whether you still have the freedom um, of, of, kind of political manoeuvre that, that you had before. The thing is that, I mean, Putin himself, yes, he's probably got a large amount of money. I, I, I think the, the, the notions that he's one of the, you know, like the richest men in the world, I think, are, are questionable. Um, but you know, nonetheless, he is, in the English vernacular, not short of bob or two. Um, but the point is, almost all of that is hidden money. It's not actually sitting in a bank account with his name on it. So the problem is that he, he, it would actually be relatively easy for a successor to basically block him from accessing those resources. So yes, I think I mean there are all kinds of controls. I, I don't think it's actually about physical extermination. He fears um, it's more about just simply the fact that he he becomes very vulnerable to whoever takes over.
0: Kind of transition into your other book, kind of how, which I think kind of covers some of the mechanisms by which Russia is power projecting um, and, and etc. Uh, it's called Russian Political War: Moving Beyond the Hybrid, and you kind of argue that the West is on the verge of a political war with Russia, and that the purpose of this war and the means by which it, it it's happening are not a traditional military conflict. Um, and to kind of kick off the conversation, I want to focus on. Uh, one of my favorite Russian political figures, uh, Vladislav Surkov, which I think he serves as an interesting bridge between these two topics. Uh, can you tell us who Surkov is and how Putin met him and why someone like him and kind of what he does
2: is important to moving beyond the hybrid? Surkov, yeah, I mean, he is indeed a fascinating character, if often way too clever for his own good. Um, he is, in many ways, the architect of... I mean, he, he's the architect of the current Russian political system um, with this sort of collection of you know, fake opposition parties just to create the theatre um, of, of apparent politics without actually the, the awkward inconvenience of actually having real opposition parties. So you, you have the communists, you have the, the so-called liberal democrats who are neither liberal nor democrat... Um, you have others, some smaller parties, and then you have Putin's own sort of, um, you know, Putin supporting United Russia bloc. So you know you you, you can have all the, all the sort of the, the soap opera make believe of, of politics without actually reality. And in many ways, that's that's really what um, Surkov brought to to Putin or whatever. I mean, this is a guy who is you know, actually of, of Chechen stock. Um, um, it's it's been claimed, and I think kind of plausibly that he was in uh, military intelligence at one point. Um, he went into business for a while, um, but then he he moved into the presidential administration, and that I think is the sort of the, the, the key the key jump. And so, really, since then, since uh, 1999, he has basically been involved in the political management. Of, of Russia. Sometimes he's been in favour more, sometimes he's been a bit out, out of favour. And the interesting thing now is that you see on the one hand that Surkov is in effect the kind of shadow administrator of Russian-occupied Donbass um, or Russian-not-quite not occupied, influenced. It's very hard to define what this particular war in southeastern Ukraine, how, how one calls it. But he's basically um, Putin's manager of, of, of that undeclared war. So he's out on the one hand, but on the other hand, he's still playing, playing with Russian politics, and actually, very recently, he came out with a, a lengthy and, and, as is most of the cases with, with, with Surkov, ludicrously kind of overwritten um, article in which he talked about Putin and Putinism and how Putinism would outlive Putin, and it was a sort of a, the wave of the future, and the whole world was, was, was basically going in, in, in Russia's way. Nonsense in many ways. But the point is the kind of nonsense that, that um, A, has a real message behind it, which in my opinion is, you know, he was actually beginning to elect, to basically give formal permission for people to talk about the post-Putin succession. But also, in classic sort of way, it was all, there was so much in the way of smoke and mirrors that in a way one didn't really necessarily notice whether there was any real truth in it, what's really going on. And I suppose to kind of segue that to, to the, this point about um, Russia's campaign. I mean, I think this is this is one of the problems, is that we are often trying to trying to understand a Russian campaign at a time when the Russians, firstly, they have very many kind of ideas of what they're doing themselves, but also they don't want it to be clear to us. Um, You know, there there, there is a lot of very deliberate obfuscation and mythology being thrown up around what the Russians are doing because the Russians themselves are actually quite aware that they are much, much weaker than the West, not just economically, but militarily and certainly in terms of soft power. And in in that respect, I think they have decided to, in some ways, embrace their role as the, the geopolitical bad boys. Um, and it, it sounds like a really, really trivial example, but it, it's one that I particularly like. I, I, I have this much-treasured T-shirt, which, which was bought for me from the, the army store in, in, in Moscow, and it's, it's, it's Putin-looking sort of gnomic, with a, a phrase in Russian that basically means I can sort things out in a moment or two. But the, the word for a moment, in this way, migom, He's also play on, on, on MiG, the Russian fighter plane. And there's a little MiG in the corner, just in case you, you didn't get the, the pun. So what he's actually also saying is, I can sort things out with a MiG or two. And there's a lot of this. The Russians are actually trying to basically encourage us to be scared of them. Encourage us to think of them being mavericks and renegades and people who will basically break the rules. It's not soft power. It's not hard power. I've been playing with the idea of calling it dark power. It's almost a sense of, well, if we're going to be the bullies, we want to be the biggest, baddest bullies in the schoolyard because then actually no one will mess with us. Then people will feel they need to give us some some, some goodies out of their lunchbox.
1: We've, uh, we've actually seen the, the, the Russian forces in Syria kind of in, in, along with their proxies to include uh, V.K. Wagner, their their private military corporations. It's, I, I kind of want to go into the hybrid portion of what Russia's trying to do. We we know that r- that the Russian troops can't go head to head with with Western powers, but what we've seen from Russia is the is the almost the transition to the, uh, the the cyber community, the active measures, the the unconventional kind of information warfare that they've kind of become sort of experts in. Do you see is is Putin laughing at at the at the United States right now? this because he's got it feels like he just is really enjoying our new president and feels like he just has what the Russians call compromise over our our uh, our president. Now, do you feel that way? Do you feel that they've they've kind
2: of started to win that hybrid war? Well, I think there's two separate issues. Let, let, let's let deal, first of all, with, with the president and then and talk about hybrid war, because I think they are actually dis- distinct in a way. I mean, I think, look, I I, I don't really buy the idea that the Russians have, have leverage over, over Trump. Um, not least because, actually, American policy towards Russia is now tougher than it was under President Obama. And I, let me be perfectly honest. If I was a case officer managing Agent Donald, I mean, the first thing I'd have been said was at the time of his political campaigning, was, for God's sake, stop praising Putin. You need to be presenting him as the Antichrist, so that then, when we do activate you and make you do various things that are useful to us, no one can think it's because you're a Russian asset. I mean, you know, he he, he would be, in many ways, the worst possible asset. And, And I think, from the Russians' point of view, they're very happy with what Trump does in terms of spreading disagreement, despond, and disunity within the West. But the image I tend to use is, you know, imagine you're in a large ballroom with all the doors are locked, and at the moment there is this insane elephant in with you. And at the moment the elephant is at the far end of the room trampling the other guys, and you're happy about that. But it's pleasure that is always tinged with, un- with discomfort at knowing that the elephant could just as easily take it into his small mind to come and trample on you. So I think that... You know, the Russians have a considerable amount of caution, I think, about Trump, because basically they're aware of, of, of America's strengths. So the Russians have cautions about Trump. But to go on to the business of, of hybrid war, um, and yes, absolutely, you know, the, the Russians have been building up a whole load of capabilities really effectively. But, and this is a central point of my book, is this is a problem. When we talk about hybrid war, um, or oh, a well, Russian hybrid war or whatever, putting aside whether or not we should call it hybrid war, which in my opinion we shouldn't, but that's a whole other war, uh, other. Semantic war to fight. In a way, there's three different phenomena we have to be aware of. One of them is look, the Russians think hybrid war, or as they call it, Gibrdnaya Vojna, they just translated it across, is actually something that the West is using against them. Now, I think they're wrong, but the point is, I think it's a genuine belief amongst the, sort of the, the, the Russian p- political elite that basically we are trying to destabilize them and they're fighting back against us. But then more generally, there's how the military look at non-kinetic operations and how they use them to prepare the battlefield, which is, you know, to an extent what we've seen in Syria, but primarily the best examples are Crimea and the early stages of the Donbass War. So, yes, using disinformation, using um, cyber attacks, using anything else they can to, to subvert and to ensure that by the time their little green men, their spets and operators, start sifting in, they have, if not already won the war, but at least positioned themselves as effectively as possible, which in a way is frankly something that everyone is doing. I mean, no war has ever not been hybrid. You know, if one looks at Desert Storm, you know, there was a strong information operations dimension to try and get the Iraqi forces to surrender and so forth. But nonetheless, you know, there are new opportunities in the 21st century and the Russians are absolutely very much at the foreground of, of, of exploiting them. But then there is a third, and for me the most important element, which is how the, national secu- the Russian national security community think about their struggle with the West. Look, I, I mean, I think the Russians regard NATO as basically bulletproof in terms of direct military action. I mean, barring some kind of cataclysmic shattering of the alliance in the future. But at the moment, they, I think they, they think that the Article 5 mutual defence guarantee is rock solid. Um... And anyway, you know, Russian military strength is not inconsiderable, but it's not in a position to take on NATO. So instead, I think what the, the civilian leadership has done, and let's be honest, the civilians are the ones in charge, is actually think, well, no, in the, in the modern world, you know, where, where you have you know, sort of the fact that we're up against democracies with all their kind of, as the Russians would think of them, weaknesses, actually, we can get what we want without a single shot being fired. So you might say, if the, the military take is the non-kinetic means are how you prepare the ground before the shooting takes place, what the civilians are saying is, we don't need shooting at all. And in this respect, I mean, I, I, I'm calling it political war because I think it's closest to what George Kennan, the uh, American, you know, legendary American diplomat and in many architect of early Cold War policy, what he outlined in 1948 when he sort of basically said that you know, political warfare, is, in broadest definition, it's the employment of all the means that a nation's command, short of war, to achieve its national objectives. So everything from black propaganda and you know economic sanctions all the way through to soft power and so forth. But you know, everything other that doesn't really involve shooting is fair game. And I think that's what the Russians are really using against the West. It is this, this sort of, you know, and, and, and I think it is... A war in the sense of, you know, the, the Russians are mobilized on almost a war fighting basis, but that it's not intended to go into a shooting stage. Let's let's
1: focus on NATO for a second. And I, I kind of like that, the fact that you mentioned that uh, I'm st- we're starting to see, let's say, let's let's look at Poland, Latvia, Lithuania, these three countries, former you know, Warsaw Pact countries are are highly, highly concerned with the President Trump's comments and kind of disparaging remarks about NATO and even the the, the the possible withdrawal from the U.S. from NATO, it seems like Russia has just kind of gotten a, what I like to call an information warfare win on that, because what you just mentioned is physically gun to gun, you know, tank to tank. The so, or excuse me, apologies, Russia... In the United States or the West, Russia can't do that. So I believe they—they seem to be focusing highly. They're they're dumping a lot of information into their cyber warfare. Do you see Poland, Latvia? Do you see the former Warsaw countries concerned that Russia is prepping them for a just a kind of a walk-in and hello type of invasion?
2: I mean, there's absolutely that that concern. Um, and in some ways, one can understand it, not least for reasons of, of history as well as geography. Um, but also, exactly, it's something that the Russians encourage. Um, you know, again, go back to my earlier point about dark power. Um, I mean, actually, it suits the Russians to be scaring people, because the point is, you know, on, on, I mean, in some ways, it's a very short-sighted tactic, because obviously, you know, NATO is in in some ways regalvanized. Um, and particularly the countries we're talking about, the Baltic states and, and Poland. I mean, these are countries that are also spending a lot of money on their defense. And also, it's worth mentioning on, on, on counterintelligence, which is a sort of the, a second and often, I think, neglected aspect of, of, of resisting this, this Russian campaign. But the point is that, in a way, the Russians have understood that their armed forces are not just military assets, they are also information operation assets. So this is, I think, one of the reasons why why we see a steady tempo, often really quite aggressive, frame, you know, aggressively framed military exercises in the region. It's why we see the Russians sending long-range bomber patrols that sort of can sometimes skirt into other countries' airspaces, or they are buzzing planes within the uh, buzzing ships with their planes in in the Baltic Sea. It's basically to create this this exactly this sense of impending doom. Because they think that this gives them some kind of political leverage.
1: One thing I kind of want to hyper-focus on and one of the most – one of the more fascinating stories, at least for me, is uh, Putin's um, relationship with this ultra-nationalist biker gang, if you will, the Night Wolves. And I'm absolutely – from an unconventional mindset, I'm absolutely fascinated in how – the 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 russian russia and the and putin for that matter has used this group to kind of expand into the baltics opening up ultra-nationalist chapters let's say in poland poland's having issues with white nationalism and the Nightwolves are always attached to that and and you mentioned my favorite story of all is the little green men there has been reporting that the, the this biker gang is some was somehow involved with that along with uh what was going on in the ukraine what's what's is this is this another another kind of uh one of putin's you know what's his plan with this with this group because they seem to be expanding and it looks like they've they've got ties to the g r u and are funded by the russian government what what's the plan there what what are they trying to do
2: well i mean first of all it's worth mentioning that there's just simply an element in which this is just putin's own p r um you know it's just another aspect of him showing what a kind of macho figure he is. It's just like when he's uh, you know riding horseback with, without his shirt on or, or whatever, riding with a biker gang. It's another attempt to just, just 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 to show us what a manly little fellow he is. But in, in geopolitical terms, I mean, I think the the night wolves, who are also incidentally active in you know, in, in some ways almost you know, more interestingly in the Balkans which is, for me, I think a much more serious potential flare-up zone than the Baltic states. So I think it's, it's actually southeastern uh, Europe that is vulnerable. But the point is, yeah, th- this is exactly how, how the Russians are operating. Because, first of all, you don't really have a grand plan. You don't really have an understanding of quite what, how, you, how things are going to play out next week, let alone next year you try and build up as many and as varied a range of potential policy instruments. And particularly, you want them across the full spectrum. So so you want entirely civil things. You, you want to have Western um, political and business leaders whom you've managed to kind of woo and, and flatter so that they're positively inclined towards you. You want to have... Um, you know political movements that because maybe because they're anti-american or they're anti-eu or whatever look to you positively all the way through to the more sharp end type things so we see the russians you know trying to find ways of using russian based organized crime for example as, as instruments in their political war and you know amongst other other sort of you know semi-violent kind of structures we ha- we have the night wolves So the Night Wolves, again, it's part of this whole spectrum of instruments. And what they can be used for is several things. One is, yeah, you you might need them just for armed muscle in certain circumstances. And that's what we saw in, in, for example, Crimea, and to a much lesser extent in in, in the Donbass. Though on the whole, these, these guys, they're not actually good fighters. They are enthusiastic rather than able. But so that's one thing, but also that ways in which you can actually begin to um, infiltrate certain kind of you know extreme and anti government or at least just kind of outsider marginalized communities um and because biker gangs have a tendency to cross over the realms of politics, economics, crime, and shall I say street politics they're actually particularly useful in that way, so I think I think you know, we shouldn't be surprised that that the Russians are going to put a you know what is actually a relatively moderate amount of money in, into supporting the Night Wolves, um, that they become a sort of a a useful and thoroughly deniable instrument because a lot of these the, the, the Russian political war is based around deniability. Um, but thirdly, you know, we should realise that actually what this is is more just it's the the tip of the iceberg of a whole variety of different actors and movements that the Russians are cultivating, some of which also have a violent role, just in case they're useful.
1: I'm going to date myself, but I remember in the late 90s, uh, I was actually in the Balkans. I was in Kosovo and Albania, and I remember being chased by Russia. We were trying to get to Pristina before the Russians were. I mean, we were painting K4 on the side of our trucks. They seemed to be really invested in acquiring the Balkans. Why is that? Like, why do they need that?
2: Well, first of all, there is actually a strong historical tie. I mean, we talking about the fact that the Russians have very, very little soft power. Well, insofar as they do have soft power, it is actually in, in the Balkans. It's, it's quite interesting that you, know, you, you go to some of these countries and their, their understanding of Russia is not the Russia of the Crimean annexation. It's the Russia that helped kick out the Ottoman Empire you know, back in the 19th century or whatever. So, you know, there there actually is a strong historical tradition. So in some ways, for a start, this is, again, this is opportunity-driven. Secondly, the Balkans are, because, you know, they are still this this sort of um, collection of often institutionally very weak countries, um, which can be played off against each other to a certain extent. Again, it's a lot easier that than trying to actually lean on Germany or any EU or, or NATO country. But thirdly, it's precisely that this is in some ways a soft un- underbelly into NATO and the European Union. From their point of view, I think a lot of this is, is instrumental. Um, by being present in these areas, they force us to talk to them. I mean, this is one of the reasons for precisely that, the dash on Pristina it was not because actually that airport was necessarily so strategically important. It's that by having Russian paratroopers there... It made them players, and whether we 're talking about Syria or Libya or, or obviously or the Balkans, you know that is often a key thing. they want to get in there so they force us to actually have to make deals with them and talk to them and treat them like an equal. But the final kind of particular point is exactly that there is a you know a, a crucial role that is going to be played by Serbia um, you know and and being able to actually sort of manage and nudge Serbia's tr- distinctly troubled relationship with Kosovo and also with Bosnia, um, you know, means, again, that the Russians acquire a role in an area that Europe cannot afford to ignore. So what they're doing is they're basically placing themselves saying there, saying you cannot reach some kind of resolution to the you know, often really quite difficult political and potentially even violent challenges of the region without talking to us. So come on. Be nice to us and offer us a deal. I want to
0: change tracks just a little bit and talk about kind of mood. There's, I remember reading about uh, this information warfare and kind of how Putin keeps power domestically a lot in the run-up to the 2016 election. Um, and the, the kind of this sense that there's so much competing information and so much disinformation that, you know, russians tend to shut down or not you know certainly not all of them but some of them um and you just get exhausted with all of with all of the input and all of the lies and it's hard to parse what's going on and i feel like in america right now i'm i'm feeling that i'm feeling that about my domestic politics um and i'm wondering if you see similarities
2: well i mean look i'm i'm sort of talking to you from brexit britain um, and dear God, absolutely, I think I mean, we're feeling much the same, but after a certain point with, with, with the whole Brexit back and forth, so we're thinking, what, what the hell is going on, and uh, we're, we're bored with this and we're fed up and so forth. But I think this is this is really about the modern world. This is about a modern world in which, frankly, anyone with uh, a Twitter feed or a Facebook page is a media outlet. Um, and the old structures, the old gatekeepers who were there to actually kind of control how many different perspectives there were, no longer have that power. Um, And I think it's not something that the Russians have invented by any means, but I think particularly the Russians have been particularly effective in realising this and thinking of the particular opportunities. Again, look, the Russians are basically geopolitical guerrillas. They're a relatively weak country trying to basically force the outside world to treat them as if they're a great power. And, and all of politics is about perception. So all the, you know, what they're having to do is basically force us to, to, to think in a certain way. Um, and to that end, what they have understood is that by... First of all, in some ways, shutting down the information space with just so many different perspectives. I mean, this was their, their strategy, for example, when... Um, Pro-Russian rebels in the Donbass, using a a, a missile system that the Russians had provided, shot down uh, the MH17 uh, airliner. And immediately what you had is the Russians blasting out umpteen different, often truly ridiculous um, theories about what was going on. It, that it, that, you know, that it, that it was, wasn't actually there at the time, that it had been shot down by a Ukrainian plane, that it was already full of you know, dead bodies when it landed, all these sorts of things. Not because they needed to convince anyone, but in a way, this, this was the chaff that was going to just obscure the truth and just make people think, well, we'll, we'll, we'll never really know what happened, instead of actually thinking, well, yeah, we, we do know what's happened. And I think this, this is the thing. All, all the Russians have to do is take the current trend... Of, of the modern media space and just nudge it a little bit further in, in, to, in their own advantage. And then they're, they're not the only ones. I mean, you know, there are lots of other players who are also, in, you know, enjoying the opportunities to basically spread myth and lie and conspiracy theory and so forth in, in, in the modern media space. But just the Russians, because they're trying to basically paralyze us, are going to do what they can to encourage that.
1: Speaking of other players, uh, how much should the West be concerned or view as a threat the the new Russia and China? Uh, be, how, how how much of a threat of them becoming closer
2: is that with their shared goal? And personally, I think we should be a lot more concerned about China n- for its own sake, not because of any kind of Chinese-Russian alliance. Look from the Chinese point, from the Russian point of view, China is. Today's unfortunate necessity and tomorrow's nightmare. I mean, in the grand scheme of things, the Russians are deeply concerned about a rising China. Not least, I mean, as, as who would not be with a long, almost indefensible border with China? I mean, if China was willing to basically take on the, the risk of, of, of nuclear strike, basically they could conquer Russia east of the Urals tomorrow. Um, because the, the Russian forces are thinly scattered along its lengthy border and largely supplied by two ribbon railways, which will be closed within 10 minutes of the start of war, if the Chinese are at all sensible. Um, now, the point is that what they also realise is actually that the Chinese don't need to use military force. The Chinese can basically buy whatever they want. And in some ways, they are already buying the Russian Far East. You know, actually, the, the amount of Russian... Um, investment compared with chinese investment that goes into the russian cities along that border and it's increasingly sort of clear that actually what what happens in beijing matters a lot more than what happens in moscow but the point is for the moment that's uh, a threat that you can leave until tomorrow you can kick that can down the road a bit at present the active challenge that m- moscow believes it faces is from the west particularly since the starting of the, of the sanctions regime from 2014 onwards. And so to that end, they feel that they need to basically make nice to the Chinese. Um, so there there are certain common interests. I mean, both of them do not want to see an American-dominated world, and they basically see the current world order as, as, as essentially what they call unipolar, in other words, American-dominated. But there's a limit to how far, you know, the fact that the, the, they they both share the same rival, shall we say, Really counts. For the Chinese, Russia's not that important. I mean, even if you look at the, the current of so huge investment in the so called One Belt, One Road, um, so transport infrastructure, I mean, it's really just a lot of it is just simply a recognition of the fact that there is just this un- inconvenient chunk of land called Russia between China and the markets that it really cares about. And he's just trying to work out how he can get across them more easily. Um, The days when the Chinese were dependent upon Russia for high-tech weaponry are increasingly disappearing. I mean, once upon a time, the Russians thought they could basically sell the Chinese stuff and that the Chinese wouldn't be able to reverse-engineer it. Well, they've they've learned the the, the mistake of that. Um, So I think for all kinds of reasons, as well as just historical reasons with, with a dash of racism the Russians are truly worried about the Chinese. And the Russians, I think, also appreciate that the Chinese um, are not going to do them any favours. At the end of 2014, there was a major gas deal. Um, and Putin needed the deal because he needed to basically show the West, we have other friends too, you know. And the Chinese knew that. And therefore, if you know, to, to put it very bluntly, the Chinese screwed Putin for all they could. And so much so that not all the financial details of that deal have yet been released because the Russians are so embarrassed about the, the scale of the deal that the Chinese forced on them. So, look, this is not, this is not an alliance in any way. This is, a, or, or rather, it's an alliance of utmost convenience. They have certain common interests. Um, they don't want to see, for example, Islam raging through Central Asia. They you know, feel that America is, is, is a little bit too dominant. But when it comes down to it, these, these are not countries that feel much, much sympathy for, for each other. Um, and therefore, I think five years, ten years down the line, we will not really be talking about a Russian-Chinese alliance. Worst case scenario is we will be talking about the fact that the Russians are now vassals of the Chinese. More likely is that they'll be in a much more antagonistic relationship.
0: Mark Gagliotti, thank you so much for coming on the show and scaring us again. Always a pleasure. The books are, uh, we need to talk about Putin, how the West gets him wrong, uh, Russian Russian political war moving beyond the hybrid. And then what's the third one?
2: Third one is an Osprey military history book on Battle of Kulikovo, 1380. A little bit of medieval historical goodness. Uh, Thank you so much
0: for coming on to talk to us. That's it for this week, listeners. Thank you so much for tuning in. War College is me, Matthew Galt, Derek Gannon, and Kevin O'Dell. It was created by me and Jason Fields, who will not leave my cats alone. If you like the show, please rate us on iTunes and leave a comment. It helps other people find the show. We're on Twitter at war underscore college, and we're still working on that website. We'll be back next week. We've been very busy. Coming up is a discussion of the war raging on the streets of America itself a look at the truth behind a Japanese legend, and tips that just might keep you safe in the event of nuclear war. Till then, stay safe out there.
1: When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy.